So as I was telling uh, as I was telling Donna today, we're we're gonna try to gonna try to whip through things if I can because I got I got a lot of ground to cover. As we talk about church history, we've been going through ancient church, all this stuff. We're into this age of revolution in the 19th century. We've gotten finished with the Civil War, and now we're solidly in the 1880s, which means that I need to talk about the Mahdi, who's coming in to lead Islam to glory. Right? That's where we left off last time, right? Just want to remember. Okay. Before I can get into that, I need to talk about what the Mahdi is. It's an Arabic word that means the, the, the guided one, or the directed one by, by Allah. It's a leader that's been prophesied about from the get-go, not in the Quran, but in the Hadith. Remember when we talked about the Hadith? <coughs> the, the oral traditions of what Muhammad had taught? Well, <coughs> as those leaders collected all of Muhammad's discussions and things, the Hadith taught that this great leader would rise up at the end times to defeat the anti-Messiah. The Antichrist, right? Yes? Um, in turn, no, not exactly, because the early church fathers, like the apostolic fathers, that sort of stuff, would be there preaching their writings, what they believed with things. This is collecting what they said Muhammad actually said. So, I'm trying to think. In, in a lot of ways, the hadith would be maybe more applicable to, like, the gospels. It's somebody else saying, this is what he said. Um, Whereas the Quran is is what Muhammad himself actually had put down. Absolutely. That one? So absolutely not is what she said. Oh no no no! But I mean it's. <laughs> God. But it, it came in later and it has. But there's two two like um, most of what we know about things like uh, jihad the the um, the fact that you get to go to uh, the highest specialist kind of paradise if you die while on jihad that comes. From the Hadith. Okay? So it doesn't have the same level as the Quran? Um, no, because, because the people, people in Islam would say that the Quran, boy, you guys stink at this whole, we're going to book through things, by the way. Because <laughs> um, people would say that the Quran is divinely given. They, you know, they, they say you, you absolutely have to read the Quran on a continual basis. So, I mean, the Quran is elevated at a much higher level than the Hadith. And yet, since the Hadith is the actual teachings of Muhammad, it's still extremely compelling, and, and they would still see that as absolute truth. Um, I guess it would be like the difference between uh, the red-letter parts of your Bible and the letters of Paul. We're, we're, in terms of how people would perceive it, it's how high does it hover and how bright does it glow kind of, kind of thing. Um, so it's still very important for, for, for people in Islam. It's just not the sort of thing where you go, you, you get special blessing points by reading it. Boy, that's an awfully simplistic way to answer that, but hopefully it gives you an idea. Anyway, yes, Islam has an idea of an antichrist. And people are always thrown when they realize how much Islam covers over with, you know, and, and overlaps with Christianity. We talked about this 1,200 years ago, but it, it overlaps a lot with Christianity. Um, the Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the Mahdi and by his assistant, the Islamic prophet Isa, who is Jesus, right? Who will return and help defeat all the Christians. That's part of what you believe. Anyway, unlike Jesus, the Mahdi is physically described by Muhammad. 
The only description we get in, in Scripture about Jesus is that he had a beard, right? Because they plucked out his beard. That's about so his physical body is not very appealing. Right, which either means he's ugly or could just mean plain, normal. So, I mean, he wasn't gorgeous and he had a beard. That's it. That's all we know. According to the Bible, or according to the, the, the uh, Muhammad, he said, Almighty Allah will raise from my progeny and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll bite a man who would have a decent gap between his front teeth, so he's going to have a nice looking thing, have a broad forehead so he may fill the earth with justice, welfare, and economic equality. And he will have a fine slender nose and there will be a mole on his cheek reminiscent of a pearl illuminating his face like a star. <laughs> so that's what we're looking for. You want the Mahdi, you want somebody... Broad forehead, gap between his teeth, mole, slender nose. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, there are a lot of guys that went, dude, I have all those, or most of those, I'm the Mahdi. One of those that we talked about uh, a, a while back um, was a Sunni preacher named Al-Wahhab, who met and, and influenced a young Muhammad ibn Saud. Remember the, the guy from whom we get the, the word? Saudi Arabia. It's an important sheikh back in 1744. Uh, Wahhab taught an extremely intense militant Islam. One that said, you know, if you're not perfect, then you're an infidel. Women are slaves. Anything that even remotely looks like you're venerating ancestors needs to be torn down. Is there a tomb somewhere? Tear it down. Because the tomb is venerating your ancestors. Um, all Muslims who take part in anything that we consider sinful are not true Muslims, and they're infidels, and we need to destroy them in, in, in jihad. That's Wahhabism. Other groups within Islam said, you guys are nuts! You do not represent Islam! This is not the way we do this! All you guys are doing, you're, uh, you're stealing everything. You're, you're taking slaves, you're stealing money, you're taking our women, and pretending that you're doing it because you're righteous. This is not Islam. And if that sounds familiar, yes most of the members of the ISIS movement come out of Wahhabism. This is still going on. Anyway, coming out of that same movement was a guy named Muhammad Ahmad. All right? He was born in Sudan, which was the largest country in Africa at the time, and it had a bunch of central locations, and it was dead center of Africa, while at the same time having some important coastal locations. So the Stan is kind of an important place at this time in history. He also was really bright, and he was really militantly Islamic, and he was really, really, really good at public speaking. He also had a slender nose, a gap between his front teeth, and a mole on his cheek. Do the math, right? This is the Mahdi, clearly. So he amassed thousands who said, yes, he's the guided one. He's the one who's going to help take over the world for Islam. This is the guy began this conquest of the Sudan, ultimately said, we need to take the capital city of Khartoum in the Sudan. Crucially important. Khartoum is technically under the control of Egypt. Egypt is controlling the Sudan. And Britain is more or less working with Egypt. They just have fought a war with them, so they're kind of... They're kind of controlling Egypt or working with Egypt. Like I said here, they're climbing into bed with them politically, very involved with Egypt. So, if Egypt's in control of Khartoum and Britain's in control of Egypt, Britain says, tell you what, 
we will evacuate all the Egyptians out of Khartoum. Because we'll just let the Sudanese kill the Sudanese, but we'll show that we're good and paternal Brits by doing this, right? Make sense? Okay. But if you'll remember from last week, and this is why we talked about this last week, they're still stinging from the Zulu and Boer Wars. Remember that from last week? Where they they kept losing. They lost to the Boers. They got slammed on the Sambuana from the Zulu. And they're like, you know, we really can't afford to lose anybody else. We keep sending in armies to Africa, and they keep getting crunched. So no more battalions. We can't do that. And yet we promised a military presence here in Khartoum. So we're going to send one guy. No, 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 no. If we send one guy, it's not like we can lose a battalion. We just have to make sure it's one really cool guy that everybody will say, ooh, this isn't a token. This guy rocks. Anybody know who they sent? A guy named Charles Chinese Gordon. Famous, famous guy at the time. Got his nickname for working in China during the Taiping Rebellion. We didn't talk about the Taiping Rebellion because I wanted to talk about it here. Does anybody know anything about the Taiping Rebellion? Oh, church history, man, this is important. Taiping Rebellion. A group called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom Movement tried to overthrow China, the, the Qing Dynasty in China, and put a Christian kingdom in. There's a Christian group, and they're like, yes, we will, we will make China a Christian nation. Chinese. Chinese national Christians. This is important for church history. Anyway, they actually took over about the, the about, I don't know, a fifth of China in the 1860s. While we were having our civil war, they were having their civil war, and the Taiping was taking over China. Pardon me? So that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, is China a Christian nation now? <laughs> so the Taiping Rebellion, not so much working, right? But anyway. They attributed their military success to the fact that God was on their side. Because their leader was God. Um, their leader, Hong, uh, I think it's Zhu Kuang, I'm not good at Chinese, I apologize, was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. And thus, he's the rightful heir of heaven. Right? Pardon me? You're making rock frowning faces. What? <laughs> But he got, a, he got a vision from God saying he's the younger brother of Jesus Christ. He's the Chinese brother of Jesus Christ. I mean, God, I mean, half-brother maybe, because I mean, he wasn't Mary's son. He had his own mom, but clearly just like Mary was married to Joseph, but God was really his real father. Hong's mom was married to his dad, but his real dad was God. Yeah, but this is different. You're co-heirs with Christ, like you need to go to heaven, yada, yada, yada. No, he's the younger brother of Jesus. Anyway, so the British sent Gordon in to support the Qing since they just fought a, the, the first opium war in China the decade before, and they are trying to make it up to them. We go, we, we're friends now. Yeah, for, let's not argue about who killed whom. Um, Gordon was this really strong Christian. And he was famous for, like, coming up to people on the street and say, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? That kind of a Christian. That's Chinese Gordon. So he actually volunteered because he was going to go help the rebels. He heard, oh, Christians wanting to take over China. Yes, I will go help the Taiping Rebellion. And then he heard their theology. He's like, this is blasphemy. 
And he saw that they're slaughtering everybody in the countryside. And he's like, this is horrible blasphemy. So he adopted Chinese dress and customs, and he led the Chinese ever-victorious army to crush the Taiping Rebellion. Which he did. Over the span of 14 years, the fighting between the Taiping rebels and the Qing led to the death of nearly 30 million Chinese people in the name of Jesus. Do you understand from church history why this is important to the Chinese church? Didn't leave a good taste in China's mouth about Christians. And this growing large, remember we've been talking about that the church has been growing again in China? And not so much now. This got clamped down. But Chinese Gordon comes home this hero. He's famous for leading native troops to victory. So, you are Britain. You don't want to send in a battalion to get dead. But you do want to say, we're taking this seriously. Is there one guy that you could send where it looks like you're taking it seriously? Is there one guy that has already made a name for himself by saying, you sent a British guy to a foreign land and he won everything? Chinese Gordon! Yeah! By the way, the next decade, the British fought the Qing Dynasty in the Second Opium War. So, you know, history. So, they send Chinese Gordon. They're like, you're wildly popular. Supervise the evacuation. But being Gordon, he says, that makes me the military governor. It means I've got power here. No, I'm not just going to supervise an evacuation. I'm going to destroy the slave trade. I'm going to preach the gospel to the Sudanese. I'm going to demand that they treat all tribes with equality and justice. He even said, at one point in his writings, he's like, I taught these tribes that they had the right to exist. You know, they had the right to live. Just because you're not the tribe in power does not mean your tribe isn't important. Everybody is made in the image of God. And I'm, by God, going to make sure you understand that before I leave. Uh, he abolished the Egyptian practice of torture of, of prisoners and things. He said, if I'm actually going to be the military British governor here, we're going to change some things. People back home in England hear about this, and they go, he rocks! This is like the coolest guy ever! You just sent him to the Sudan to evacuate Khartoum, and he goes, and by the way, while I'm here, I'm fixing the whole country! Wow! So he goes to Khartoum and he goes, and I ain't evacuating nobody. Uh -oh. like, Who did what now? <laughs> he says, no, it is my Christian duty to take a stand against the Mahdi. A great Christian warrior versus a great Muslim warrior. We'll see whose God is stronger. Oh. I draw the line here. And which made you go, ah. <laughs> He looks sort of like Charles. He does look like Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we talked about Charles Martel? He's like, one guy standing against the Muslims in Spain. It's like, this is one guy standing against the Muslims in Khartoum. If there wasn't a movie on this, there would be something wrong with the world, right? So, in 1966, Hollywood made a movie called Khartoum, starring Lawrence Olivier as Muhammad Ahmed and Charlton Heston. <laughs> send him, everything gets fixed. <laughs> now, I didn't get all the historical facts right. Um, you can make an argument that both stars did an amazing job if you can overlook the accents. Um, <laughs> he laid it out a bit thick. Not horrible, but a bit thick. Charlton Heston, not bad British accent, just kind of sparse. So, it's like, 
But both of them did a really good job of acting in the midst of it. And they did this wonderful clash between the two. Um, there was an, a completely historically inaccurate scene where the two met at one point and talked. And the screenwriter actually sent a script to the Mahdi's grandson for his input. And the screenwriter even said, you know, I, I wrote this scene in saying that they talked with each other because I thought it was important. And the Mahdi's grandson said, yeah, that never happened. They never actually met. But they should have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. Outnumbered nine to one. Gordon fortified the city against attack, which is helpful that they had the Blue Nile and the White Nile on either side of the city. And then they made some fortifications here. So it was, he's a good engineer, fortified the city against attack, dug in with six months' worth of supplies to hold out against 50,000 soldiers. So Mahdi and the British government are all sending letters to Gordon saying, Please, please, they're going to take Khartoum. We don't want you dead. Please go away. And he's like, No, not doing it. On top of that, everybody back home is hearing more and more about this. They're hearing about all the stuff he's done during this day, and they're hearing about the fact that he's dug in 50,000 troops around him, and they can't dislodge him. He's becoming a hero. So they start putting pressure on William Gladstone, the, the prime minister, saying, oh, we ought to go support him. You need to send a relief column. Gladstone's like, that was the whole point. The point was that we weren't doing it. <laughs> Eventually, he has to, public pressure. So he sends a guy named Wolseley, who is famous for being efficient, but not fast. Which is fine, because the government kind of wants them to arrive too late to actually fight and potentially lose. They would rather you show up late and say, huh, oh well. It's like calling at you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon going, hey, I knew you were moving today. Can I come help? Oh, <laughs> uh, we just finished. Oh, well, at least I called. Against overwhelming odds, Gordon holds out for almost a year. They keep going out and forth. They keep stealing supplies from the Mahdi and bringing them back in and stuff. Holds out for almost a full year against 50,000 whirling dervishes. That's where we get the, the dervishes were the Mahdi's people. When they finally overran Khartoum, Gordon fought on the steps of his own palace and got hacked to pieces. For an extended period of time, for the, like almost a year, the only thing he would carry when he'd go out was a cane. That last day, he finally was like, ah, I'm taking a pistol. But he eventually got killed. Wait a second, so that guy didn't show up for an entire year? The Mahdi says this is a clear victory against Christianity. Islam is stronger than Christianity. Gordon's head is put on a pike and raised up high so that everybody can see, which the Mahdi originally said, don't do that. Don't don't desecrate his body. But when they did it and they said, yay, Islam, yay, Mahdi, he went, yeah, okay. Two days after the fall of Khartoum, Wolseley's troops arrived. And assess the situation and leave. Like, oh, well, we're apparently a little bit late. An entire year now? Oh, like 10 months, yeah. Entire oh. Western world is shaking. Because Christians, I don't know if you can picture this in a modern context, the Christians picked a culture war and then lost it. I don't know if that's something you could picture in America, that Christians would actually pick a fight and then lose it, and lose morale as a point. <gasps> Oh, we live in a broken world. You're the one that picked the fight. I'm not saying you shouldn't have even. Just, you picked the fight and then lost it because you fought it wrong. Or just shouldn't have picked that fight at that place at that time. Or even if you hadn't felt back to sit there and say, oh, our world is falling apart now. 
kind of faith do you have? Is it only built on victories? Anyway, so all sorts of Islamic extremists start popping up over the, uh, over the Middle East. People start saying, I'm going to go to the Sudan and join the Mahdi's army. It's going to be huge. Within six months, the Mahdi gets typhus and dies. And all of a sudden, Christians around the world go, that's God's justice. See that? See that right there? And you just go, again, you're building your faith on victories, right? You struggle when it doesn't look like it's working, and you have faith when it does look like it's working. I would submit to you, faith is faith when you have faith when it doesn't look like it's working, right? Substance of things unseen. Oh, well. Britain reconquers the Sudan in the 1890s. All is right with the world, right? Yay! Then we can move on. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible is printed. You guys have heard of the Revised Standard, right? This point in church history, King James Version has been the standard for over 250 years. Let it go. Let it go, King James people. Man, everybody knew it. Everybody liked it. It feels like the Bible. When they hear those verses, that's what they quote. That's the Bible. That's 250 years out of date. Nobody still talks like that other than clergymen and the Amish, right? Nobody says these and thous. Nobody does that anymore. So when people are reading it, it's becoming alien when originally the whole point was to try to make it accessible. Mostly. King James, if you remember, was trying to be written to be poetical also, but still. So the Anglican Church commissioned this revision. Just a revision. They went back to the Greek and the Hebrew text, the best ones that they could find, so they could make it and make some changes. They also tweaked the wording just to make it more accessible and take the these and thous out for the most part, that sort of thing. But we're also going to do something wacky. You know those parts of the Bible that are, that are poetry? We're going to dent them like they're poetry. Up to this point, it's all been written in big block text. So even the poets, poet stuff, even, even the Psalms were written in like narrative paragraphs. And the Revised Standard, they went, why don't we break it up so that it looks like poetry? I mean, this is what we do when we print poetry. Why don't we do it when we print biblical poetry? We look at that now and go, well, duh. 1881, that was kind of novel. But again, they're only tweaking it. They are not changing it. It's, it's not a new translation. It's a revision. Why is that important? Why are they making such a big to-do about that? Yeah! If you actually change the King James, people are going to have a cow. They're going to assume that you're changing the Bible. And even you can jump up and down and say, we're not changing the Bible. We're, that's just a translation of the Bible, and we're making this a more modern, more accurate translation. But you changed my Bible! Could you imagine if somebody came along and tried to change the King James? What kind of backlash would there be to anybody trying to change the King James? And all of us MIB readers go, those people are stupid! Oh, to imagine having that much of a reaction. Ooh, TNIV! You changed the Bible! I know. So anyway, becomes pretty popular. Yes, there are some people that say, oh, this is a horror. But in general, it becomes pretty popular. But the biggest thing, I mean, that's important stuff, but the biggest thing is it sets this precedent for modern revisions. For 250 years, there's basically one English Bible. And after this, they're like, yeah, we can do multiple things. 1901, the revised version, standard American edition comes out that says we're taking all them U's out of words color with a U. That's not right. Different from, not different 
two, <laughs> you know, fixing all those Englishisms and making it American. But then directly based on that were the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the Amplified Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, even the Living Bible is a paraphrase out the Revised Standard. I'm not even talking about NIV or any, I'm talking about books specifically based on the Revised Version, this Revised Standard Version. All that starts in 1881. Add to that all the other things like the message, and, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, has nothing to do with the Revised Standard. This is just the Revised Standard. Kind of an important deal. 1882, Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. You guys all remember this, right? Because they teach this. No, they rarely teach this. So thank you, those of you who are nodding. You had all these gold rushes that have been going on. There's high mortality rates going on in the Taiping Rebellion. So a bunch of Chinese said, you know, America looks good. It looks a lot better than China right now. And so they, they immigrate to the United States, especially in the West, especially in China, or in uh, California. So California pushes forth legislation to exclude all healthy Chinese males. If you are an adult Chinese male, you can't enter the country because you'll be taking the jobs of the good Americans. Again, not something you would understand today, this idea of building a wall between America and some other country. But you just can't trust the Chinese and they take your jobs. Yeah. So, Chester Arthur says, no, can't do that, Congress. And then Congress goes, tell you what, we'll only make it last for 10 years. And so Chester Arthur says, oh, okay. This is the same year he also signed into legislation that anybody coming to the United States has to pay a 50 cent tax, and we're not taking mentally ill or disabled people or criminals or anything like that. We've got to start, you know, tightening up the borders and things. And of course, people are like, yay, we've got an awesome president, yay! For the first time, America closes its doors to somebody based on ethnicity. This is kind of a huge deal. Everybody else can come. Communists, nihilists, socialists, everybody else can come. But not the Chinese. We just don't like them. Again, interesting points in history where, where we decided who we did and didn't like. Even those Chinese currently sitting in the United States are retroactively declared permanent aliens and denied citizenship. Their citizenship is revoked saying, your, cho your, your children are permanent aliens. You are permanent aliens. You are not citizens. You never will be. We don't want Chinese. So now, just because it's important, the current but growing people whom Americans treated badly within their borders in the 19th century list is growing, right? We've talked about blacks being treated badly. We've talked about Latinos being treated badly. Also in California, remember the laws against Latinos? Native Americans treated badly, right? Again, that's actually a relatively recent thing. I mean, I'm not saying that we had a great relationship with them in the 1700s, the 1800s, early 1800s. There were wars and things. But it came to the, we hate you because of the color of your skin. We will mistreat you. We will abuse you under the law. That's really only within the last 10 years or so going on in the United States. The Irish, because they're doing the same thing that the Chinese are doing, but they're doing it from the East Coast forward. Which is why, you know, it was Mrs. O'Leary's cow that must have started the, the great Chicago fire. Darn those Irish. It wasn't the cow. I specified that the other day. It was not! <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, and now the Chinese. Luckily the Swedes are still doing okay, right? We still like Swedes, which is good, because we're going to talk about a Swede. Charles Johnson starts a society in 1882. 
He moved to the United States from Sweden in, 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 at the age of 18, back in 1869. He attends the Calvary Walnut Street Mission Church, but he says, you know what? There really needs to be a Bible study for Swedish immigrants, specifically for them. So I'm, I already have a, a prayer meeting that meets every week in my home, so I'm going to invite the Swedes to come join me for a weekly Bible study in Swedish, so we can study the Bible together in Swedish. By March of 1882, they solidified their group, and so they decided to form themselves into the Swedish Evangelical Mission Society. And by 1884, they had 33 members, and they officially incorporated as the Swedish Mission Covenant Church of Peoria. Yeah. Which we now call First Covenant Church, or home, right? This is our church, starting in, in 1882. In 1924, the Sunday service was officially held in English for the first time. So that's less than 100 years ago. There had not been an English service here. And being a church, you did something different. Shenanigans, right? Ruckus is ensued. How dare you do an English service? That foreign, foreign tongue. If you're going to have us reading that stupid King James Bible. You know, that's clearly not the real Bible, because Jesus wrote in Swedish. So it wasn't until 1935 that Vernon Benson started leading three out of four services in English. A month. Three out of four a month. We'll just do three out of four a month in English. We'll still have a Swedish service. Three out of four we'll do in English. He's a wacky young man, though. King's fresh out of seminary. Wild ideas. In the middle of America, maybe we should, I don't know, speak English. Um, we can still do Swedish! I'm not saying not Swedish! No. So, Johnson himself pastors the church from 1882 to 91, and then 94 to 96, and then 21 to 23. Total of 13 years. Meaning, he's tied with Jim Booker for being the second longest pastor in First Covenant Church history. I found that on North Park University uh, <laughs> website. I love that picture of him. I know. Well, he was a little older than this when he started, and 13 years later, he was a lot older than that when he ended. Anyway, <laughs> second longest running. Who's the first longest pastor in First Covenant Church history? That would be me. First, I'm the longest running pastor in First Covenant history. That's official come January 1st. I, I've actually been here all the, like over 13 and a half years. But come January 1st when I'm on the, the 14th calendar year. If you weren't pregnant. society. So let's do another Charles starting a society. Charles Chase Russell says, he, he has a society, I'm going to have a society. Everyone wants a society. Remember the restoration movement that we talked about 80 years ago? began with Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone back in that Cane Ridge revival, that outdoor revival going out at the beginning of the 19th century. Remember that? Yes. Clearly Eric's like, yeah, my peeps. Okay, so these guys. The Civil War pretty much killed all the revivals. Not a lot of revivals going on thanks to the Civil War. But 
the, the restoration movement that says we need to get back to the way things really were in Scripture, that's still going on. We're going to restore the integrity of the original biblical doctrines. We're going to get back to, uh, to, to what the Bible is actually saying and figure out what everybody else is doing wrong. Because clearly, we're doing a lot of things wrong. Even today, wouldn't you say that the church does a lot of things wrong? There's a lot of things that we do that even if it's not wrong, it's not necessarily what the original church did. Can you find anything in, in the Bible, anywhere, about a church building being built at where we meet? Or that we need to meet, we need to meet once a week on Sunday. They met on the first day of the week, but they also met throughout the week. They met and had dinner together in each other's homes and things. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a church building, but there's a lot of stuff that we do where we say, well, this isn't primitive Christianity. They say, ah, we need to get back to this and look at what everybody else is doing wrong. And as you've heard me say before, to the hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Once you decide everybody else is doing everything wrong, now let's go read the Bible and see how they're doing it wrong. Do you think you're going to find how everybody else is doing it wrong? Yes. So, Charles Taze Russell, coming out of the Restoration Movement, he's a Congregationalist, says, yep, we need to fix this. For instance, hell, I don't like it. I don't like the idea of hell. doesn't fit with my idea of a, of, a, of a loving God. So he began to follow the teachings of William Miller. We talked about him uh, about 40 years ago, uh, the guy who founded the Adventist movement. And if you remember the Adventist movement, what is Advent? Oh, my goodness. Okay, Advent literally is talking about a coming to. When G the Advent is when Jesus came to earth. An Adventist is focused on when Jesus is coming back to earth, his second coming. So, the Millerites, or the Adventists, are focused on figuring out when Jesus is returning. So, Miller was the first American to do that. I'm going to figure out when Christ is going to return, and here's my chart. You know, that's, that's that thing, that whole ilk started more or less with Miller. So, Russell says, yeah, we're going we're gonna to focus on Jesus returning. We're going to focus on what's going on in Scripture. So, he says, the, the modern church has forgotten what the Bible is really all about. Um, we need to get back to the truth of Scripture and restore it. For example, Jesus was clearly God. We all agree with that, right? Paul even says so, basically. But he didn't become God's son until after he died on the cross and was resurrected, right? Clearly. So, clearly we become God's children on our resurrections when Christ returns. You're not God's children now. You will be resurrected and become God's children. But not everybody's going to be resurrected. The book of Revelation says only 144,000 are going to be resurrected. Because if you read Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 and you see them ruling in heaven in Revelation 20, clearly it's only going to be those 144,000. Because we need to get back to what the Bible actually says, and everybody's doing it wrong. Nothing? Okay. If you go look up those verses, pretty much not what those verses are saying. It's important not just to look up those verses, but look up all the verses around those verses. Crazy context. Um, 144,000 from Revelation 7, it's not devout Christians or devout Millerites, it's 12,000 Jews from each tribe. Each tribe, 12,000 that are sealed, protected during a time of tribulation, though they're eventually going to be standing before the throne in Revelation 14, which means they're dead. So, you know, it gets a little interesting with that. And it's telling that later on in Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, are all worshipping God before his throne. So it's a bit more than just 144,000. Even within the context of 144,000, and then there's also this great multitude. The Christians spoken of in Revelation 20 as ruling with Christ in heaven are not 
the 144,000 people talked about in the other ones. It's rather specifically those martyrs who lost their lives, who were beheaded, even particularly, for their faith during that time of tribulation. Again, you got to read all the verses around the verses. He also says, well, there's no hell for us to worry about, because if we're not really God's children until we're resurrected, then nothing's happening in the grave. There is no anything going on outside of being resurrected to become God's children. There's just those who are resurrected and those who are not resurrected. That last group just ceases to exist. There is no hell. The Bible never talks about hell. Yeah, it does. It, Jesus talks a lot about hell, sex, taxes, politics, all the stuff that we go, well, don't talk about that. That's what Jesus talked about. You're dealing badly with the poor people. Oh, no, that's me. Let me talk about money. No. Which means there's no immortal soul apart from the body. Because there's nothing going on in the grave, and you're, if there's no hell, and what happens to those souls? Well, there is no soul. And if there is no soul, then that means that concept of souls is this pagan idea, not, not a biblical one. Let's get back to the Bible. The Bible never talks about hell. The Bible never talks about souls. This is ridiculous. And if everything hinges on a resurrection, and we're going to be resurrected when Christ returns, then we really need to figure out when Christ is going to return, right? Luckily, God left the Bible in stone for us to study so we can know the day and the hour of his return. Anybody know what this is? The, no, what is this Bible in stone? Oh, come on. You've seen it. Every one of you has seen it. The Great Pyramid. The Great Pyramid of Giza. It was built by Melchizedek. <laughs> Clearly. No, it was Solomon. It was built by Melchizedek. What are you, some sort of reason? <laughs> <laughs> built by Solomon. It's a golden compass, right? Okay, built by Melchizedek. Specifically to point to important dates in future history. So, if we break down the basic measurements into these things called pyramid inches that only pyramidologists really understand, and we measure specific passages of the, of the, great, temp, uh, of the great Pyramid, and then we measure those next to other passages, and, and we decide which passages we want to measure versus which passages we don't, and we decide when we're going to start. It's like all this starts with B.C., this, leading up to A.D. Clearly, Jesus is, is going to return in 1874. Yeah, easy. Which Jesus totally did. Um, yeah. Russell's like, yeah, totally did. He noticed you couldn't see him, um, but he must have returned invisibly. And if you remember when we talked to Miller, he talked about an investigative judgment that God is going to be carrying on in heaven, where he's going to judge the world to decide if the world is ready to be judged. Um, so he's going to do that. Maybe Jesus is starting that here. Instead of it's, Miller thought the investigative judgment was in heaven. Russell says, maybe it's here. The investigative judgment here for 40 years, because that's a Bible length. So, when World War I breaks out in 1914, also goes, 40 years, man. Apparently he judged us, and we are under judgment. This is Armageddon. It's all coming down, baby. It's all coming down now! And then 1915 comes around, and we're still here. And so he says, oh, wait a minute. 1914 must be when Jesus returns and starts his investigative judgment. That's what it was. That's what it was. Right? We talked about this before. People go, okay. Because you know, it comes to a point where you say, either you are just a doofus. Wait, which would make me a doofus. 
because I've been following you. Now, so you're either doofus or you're stinking brilliant. Well, I know I'm not a doofus, so you're stinking brilliant. So to wait and watch and make sure that the restored church is all prepared, they founded Zion's Watchtower Tract Society. We're going to get the, tra the truth out there. We're a watchtower looking for the end times. They also, they also started publishing his six-volume Studies in the Scripture, which is extremely helpful. Because as, t as Russell said, now you don't really need the Bible anymore. No, he says, the six volumes of Scripture studies are practically the Bible. They're just topically arranged. In fact, we have found... If you just read studies in scripture and you don't read the Bible, you basically are on track. You have truth. You have the, the light of truth. And you basically have the Bible. But we have found that if you read the Bible and not studies in scripture, you do not see the truth and you are lost in darkness. Do the math on that. It's like, so if you just read our kooky literature and not the Bible, you will have an effective grasp of our kooky theology. But, if you read the Bible and not our kooky stuff, you won't come up with our kooky stuff on your own. Like, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. And again, maybe Russell's not the best guy to be your Bible teacher. Uh, there's a court case, Russell versus Ross, 1913, and I love this cross-examination by an attorney. Sir, you know the Greek alphabet? Oh, yes. Can you tell me the correct letters if you see them? Well, some of them. I mean, I might make a mistake on some of them. Would you, uh, would you tell me the names of those letters on top of the page? Page uh, 447 I've got here. Well, I don't know that I would be able to. You, you can't tell what those letters are? I mean, look at them. See if you know. My way, sir, are you familiar with the Greek language? No. And this is the guy who is going to be better at teaching you the Bible than, say, the Bible is. Anyway. Russell dies in 1916, and his leadership goes on to a Missouri judge named Joseph Franklin Rutherford, who says, I'm going to keep all the theology, and we're just going to keep expanding on that theology. We're going to keep most of your prophetic end times things, but we're bumping the times back because clearly they've been wrong. So we're forgetting all that 1874 stuff. No, no, no. We're just bumping everything here. We're going to conveniently downplay that whole Greek, Great Pyramid of Giza thing. <laughs> An amazing number of people left the society because they're like, but, but it's the Bible in stone. And Rutherford's like, yeah, we're dropping the whole great pyramid of Giza thing. <laughs> Clearly we figure all this stuff out from the Bible. But the great pyramid of Giza is in Egypt. No, we're not going to talk about that anymore. And we're going to change the name of the society to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because that's what we are. We are witnesses to what Jehovah is doing. So all this comes from all of that. By the way, the watchtower is still around. It's this periodical that you'll see at dentist offices and airports and things like that. Pardon me? And on your front porch? I used to be on their mailing list until I sent people to chat with me. I'm not anymore. I don't know what happened. Makes me sad. Um, 1884, the Berlin Conference. This is another kind of important thing. It may not sound like it immediately has to do with church history, but it kind of does. Back in 1876, King Leopold of Belgium, Leopold II, created this philanthropic Afri International African Society. We're going to go help Africa. We're going to save Africa from the Africans because they're doing it wrong. But we're going to help them. And it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. To mask what was really nasty going on in his International Congo Society. He had two different societies going on. 
And everybody focused, all the press focused on the really nice one going around building schools and, and uh, giving them clean water and good medicine and stuff like that. The other one, kind of doing its own thing. He sent Stanley. Remember Henry Stanley? Who went and saved Livingston? Who didn't need saving? He just was, in, he just was out of it for a little bit. Yeah. So he sent Henry Stanley back to Africa. He said, Stanley, you've got the knowledge, you've got the know-how, you've got the international credibility, you can write all sorts of good letters and things. You're also a total slime. You have the moral flexibility that I can use you to be my spy to help set up the Congo Free State, which is controlled by Belgium. And if that's not double speak, I love that. It's like, the Congo Free State, we're free of all that African control, and now we're happily getting controlled by King Leopold II. Belgium. And yes, Henry Stanley is the one who helped him set some of that, a lot of that up. So England is carving out this chunk of Africa for themselves. Belgium is carving out this chunk of Africa for themselves. You're France. What do you do? I want some. I want some! Come on, cake! So, 1884. All the European countries go, we want cake too! So they all come and meet together in Berlin and divvy up Africa into spheres of influence. I love this picture, because it's all the European powers sitting here, and there's an African watching from the sidelines going, what? Do you guys get to do that? Each nation gets a chunk of Africa to supervise. Supervise. They're not controlling it. They're just making sure bad stuff doesn't happen. Right? This isn't a dark continent anymore. It's darn near European. Yeah, uh, this is France. Yes, they do. Anyway. Yeah, but remember, this is right across from France, and they've been dealing with this for a while. But yes, France goes, yay, we get this orange. Uh, orange is Britain. Okay, anyway. The British, the, the Berlin Conference of 1884 basically did, remember what the Pope did with Portugal and Spain? Do you remember those treaties? Where the Pope said, okay, everything from here to here is Portuguese, everything from here to here is Spanish. That's what this did on a secular realm. It was like, yep, we're divvying up Africa, knock yourself out. And the new Congo Free State is officially recognized, and this is interesting, not just being a Belgian thing. It's not technically Belgian. It's Leopold's personal reserve. He himself owns it privately. Which is a basically a horror, if you think about it. Um, Leopold's officials brutalize the people. Because they can do it. It's one gigantic plantation. It's horrific. They effectively enslave this entire section of Africa to do whatever they feel like doing. They're not under international law because it's a private reserve. For instance, there's one of colonial official named Leon Rome. Anybody hear that name before? Anybody seen the new Tarzan movie? Yeah, he's one of several characters in that movie who's an actual historical character. The bad guy. He was famous because he had this beloved flower garden at Stanley Falls where he decorated it with the decapitated heads of 21 dissident Congolese nationals. That's just like one thing Leon did. He's slime. So we were watching, when we were watching Tarzan, he's like, yeah, Leon Rome. I'm like, wait a minute, I know this guy. He's an actual guy. He's an evil man in this movie. I'm like, He's even eviler than he is in the movie. Yes, he's an evil, evil man. This is the guy that arguably, uh, if you've ever read Heart of Darkness, the Joseph Conrad novel, this is the guy that his, that his main, one of, the antagonist, I guess, Kurtz, the 
government official who has been in the bush too long and has gone wacky, that's essentially based on Rome. And if you haven't read the book, if you've seen Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Now is based on Heart of Darkness. So Colonel Kurtz, all that based on this. This is what's going on in the Congo. Leopold and his agents, they killed roughly 20% of the population, about 10 million people in the few years they controlled it. And this isn't including all the other people that they maimed, tortured, imprisoned, brutalized, what have you. Bad, bad stuff going down. Luckily, one of the things that changed public opinion and stopped this was a book. Because remember, we've talked about the power of mass media, and increasingly the power of mass media. Written by anybody want to, who's a famous author, maybe in the 1890s? No, no, but this is a more popular author. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a book called The Crime of the Congo. He said, I am convinced that the reason why public opinion has not been more sensitive upon the question of the Congo Free State is that the, the terrible story has not been brought thoroughly home to people. If they knew what was going on, they would stop this. And within a year, it was closed down. And independent, the independent investigation started before this, but that was kind of the last nail in the coffin. Independent investigation demanded by the British found Leopold guilty of horribly mistreating the Congolese. Like, no, you do not get to do this anymore. They forced him to sign the land over to Belgium. Like, you do not get to... Belgium can still have it, but it's an official Belgian colony now, which means it's subject to international law and subject to international oversight. You don't get to do this anymore. Speaking of Africa, because I don't want you to sit there here just and say, huh, these poor noble savages. Bad way of looking at it on a number of levels, and demeaning way of looking at it when you think about it. 1885, the Uganda martyrs were killed. 1884, Mwanga II comes to power as the new king in Uganda. Over here. Um, his father had really been good at making the Christians fight, the, the Catholics fight, the Protestants fight, the Muslims. They're all constantly vying for his attention and for his favor. Mutisa was really good at that. Mwanga says, I don't care about that. I don't want that. I hate him, and I want him out of my country. I especially hate the Christians. And in his own words, he specifically says, because once they're converted to Christianity, um, which I apparently spelled wrong, his, he said, my court pages no longer accept my homosexual advances. And then you can't deny the king anything. If you deny the king anything, that's a capital offense, and you got there. And so these boys are not letting me do this anymore because they're Christians. So near the end of 1885, he starts killing anyone in his court who has converted to Christianity. Anybody finds out. In fact, he also assassinated the new Anglican, the very first Anglican bishop coming into the country, James Hannington. He gets assassinated on the border of Uganda as he's coming in. I don't know if this is his real last words, but traditionally his last words were, Go tell Mwanga that I have purchased the road into Uganda with my blood. In all, Mwanga killed 22 Catholic and 23 Ang Anglican court members who were converts, uh, burning them alive which is why this particular panel uh, uh, showing all of them has them with, with spears and flames behind them and stuff. So, not a good time. Within two years, the Muslims in Uganda say, okay, enough. We're sick of you. are a bad king. You're a really bad king. We're sick of your moral weakness, and we don't like the idea that you had this plan where you're going to put all the Christian and all the Muslim leaders on an island infested with crocodiles and let us starve to death. We don't like that. So, they deposed him. They ran him out. They create this strict Muslim government. They're like, this is it. We're going to be 
you know, they work for the Mahdi in, in the Sudan, we're going to do this here. Which makes the Christians of Uganda upset, so they reinstate Mwanga as king. The Christians go to war, civil war, to reinstate Mwanga as king. Politics and religion are bizarre bedfellows. It's like, wait, you were slaughtering Christians. What, like almost 50 Christians got killed, 45 Christians got killed, and the next, like two years later, we're, we're supporting you. Yes. With help from his new Christian allies, Mwanga retakes the throne, only vaguely better than he was before. By 1892, the Catholics and the Protestants, who are now technically in power, are fighting each other in the streets. Think Dublin at its worst. There's a huge gang war going on between the Protestants and the Catholics because the Muslims aren't in charge anymore, and what else are you going to do? So, 1894, Mwanga accepts British aid to quell the violence, and Uganda becomes an official British protectorate. So, Britain just carved out another little bit of Africa for itself. Same year. The Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant begins in Chicago. Remember last week we talked about P.P. Waldenstrom, or the other week we talked about P.P. working in Sweden to break away from the traditional Swedish Lutheran state church, right? We're going to have our own church. We're, we're going to focus on a relationship with Christ. And so now in America, that Swedish Missions Association has founded the Swedish Evangelical Mission Covenant of America with its headquarters in Chicago which eventually becomes known as the Evangelical Covenant Church. There's a little less yaying going on. But, but if you're doing the math, we are three years older than the Covenant. So we've got seniority. Is the way that works, right? Here we are for us, I suppose. Anyway, the modern ECC's core fundamental value is unity. Everybody is going to be unified. We're all going to agree. And if we don't agree, we're at least not going to tell each other. But at that first convention, they're still trying to figure everything out. What exactly are we going to be here in the, in the United States? And it got a little interesting. There was a guy named Carl Anderson, who's a pastor from Galesburg, a strong proponent of strict Lutheranism. And so we're Swedish and we're Lutheran, so clearly we're going to be a Swedish Lutheran church in the United States. He encouraged his fellow Swedes to do things like use English in services. Um, the idea of a personal conversion experience is probably a good thing. You know, all that kind of stuff. So he's... Some people saw him as like this tremendous progressive. To facilitate all this, he broke away from the Wisconsin Augustana Synod to create his own Ansgar Synod, which is interesting. This actually came up yesterday when we were at uh, the library doing book signing. A guy came up and he's like, oh, so was that connected to the Augustana Synod? No. Yes, it broke away from the Augustana Synod. How bizarre. I'll talk about this tomorrow. Um, to create their own synod of Lutheranism uh, with, for the Covenant Church. Another guy at that conference coming out of Princeton, Illinois, was a guy named John Princell. He says, you're totally wrong. You couldn't be more wrong. All denominations are evil. Even blasphemous. A denomination is blasphemous. The church is made up of the people of God with Christ as its head. Any denominational structure, that's given between Christ and his church. Right? This is, this is coming between... And, and, and putting human organizational patterns in there, and that's inherently wrong. So, he even tried to have the Ansgar Senate dissolved, saying, no, 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 we need to plow anew and not sow among thistles. Don't keep doing the same mistakes. We've got an opportunity to build something new here. Interestingly, one of my covenant history profs, as I was going through this, said Princell was a bad example that we shouldn't follow, and I love this, saying we wouldn't allow his sort of intolerance in the covenant today. 
I had to write that down. We wouldn't allow his kind of intolerance in the covenant today. So you would, couldn't tolerate that kind of intolerance, right? Exactly. In fact, I, I, I may have even said that. So we won't tolerate that kind of intolerance. Anyway. Did you catch what you were saying? No, but everybody else did that I was talking to. Yeah. In between uh, these two guys was a guy named Carl Bjork, a cobbler by trade who politely said, you know, it's irrational to argue that you shouldn't come together as a unified community of churches since we're already unified by common threads of belief and practice. Which, if you think about it, Princell goes, okay, I can go along with that. We're already the church. Like, right. So I don't know if we should do it like this. But we're already the church, aren't we? Yeah. Okay. So, Bjork says, I want to tether the denomination of Lutheranism, but he is also a reminder of the Pietists. Remember the Pietists when we talked about Jakob Spener and. Okay. What was the whole point of the Pietist movement? Anybody want to toss that anything out? Yeah, personal relationship with God. You dig into the Bible, you know God. And so he's like, you know, we're not based on forms, we're not based on that sort of structure. We're, the forms aren't bad, but we're based on having a personal relationship with God. So, even though I would have rather made it an essentially Lutheran church, we'll make it an essentially pietistic church. And therefore, that's kind of where the background came from, which is why, when when we look at the really niche, I really actually like this graphic that they came up with. The, the, the family tree that the covenant came up with, they put the, 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 the covenant squarely on the Lutheran branch, but off of the pietist sub-branch. Okay. Speaking of Chicago and societies, the Chicago Evangelization Society begins in 1886. D.L. Moody's church and Grand Great, even though it burned down in the Great Chicago Fire, they rebuilt another one. So booyah for D.L. Moody. O'Leary's, and it wasn't the cow. So 1886, Moody established the Chicago Evangelization Society telling his church members, quote, I believe we've got to have gap men. Men who, to stand between the laity and the ministers. Men who are trained to do city mission work. Take men that have the gifts and train them for the work of reaching the people. Which is kind of a nifty idea. It's not just, no, we're not a seminary. We're training lay people to be ministers themselves. It's a really cool idea. After Moody died in 1899, it was renamed in his honor, and it became the Moody Bible Institute, all starting in 1886. Today, enrolls 4,000 students a year, has that famous Moody radio, has Moody publishers. My favorite part still is the amazing acoustics in the courtyard. Has anybody ever been inside Moody and been inside the courtyard? Smack dab, middle of Chicago, there's this courtyard with trees and all sorts of things. It, it, you walk into, the, into this arch, and it's just this whole little encased world. But what's amazing is, I remember standing like down here, and a buddy of mine was up here, and he poked his head out the window and said, Hey, Kevin, and I said, Hey, what's up, man? We could hear each other perfectly. It's like Masada, man. You get to stand at the base and talk to them up there. It's the only way it's like Masada. Don't go anywhere like <laughs> But the acoustics were phenomenal. Go there sometime. It's amazing. Anyway, that's the same year that Billy Sunday, the center fielder for the Chicago White Stockings, Chicago White Stockings, a professional baseball team founded in 1870. The Chicago White Stockings became better known today as the, the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> Not the Chicago White Sox. Yeah. Go, people. 
Why would you think the Chicago White Stockings became the Chicago White Stockings? You fools! <laughs> no, it became the Chicago Cubs. Chicago White Stockings were named as an nod to the existing Cincinnati Red Stockings, which was shortened to the Reds. Right. <laughs> Veteran first baseman Cap Anson, by the way, who's also the guy that created the, the color barrier in Major League Baseball. He refused to play with anybody of color, uh, anybody who isn't white. And since he was so famous, everybody said, okay, I'm sorry, you have to remove the people of color from your roster. I don't care if they're black or Latino or whatever. So Cap Anson, classy guy. Anyway, Cap Anson, so popular that sports writers began calling the mostly rookie team Anson's Colts, his young, his young Colts. Even though they're the, the White Stockings, that was their thing. They're, they're these young bucks doing this stuff by the mid-1890s. And by the turn of the century, they were calling him his Cubs, his little, his little Cubs, his young ones. And the name kind of stuck. And eventually they moved from being the Chicago White Stockings, actually they went through several different permutations, and eventually just became the Chicago Cubs. But that's where, for those going, well, why do we have Cubs? Are there a lot of bears in Chicago at any given point? No, it's all pointing back to Anson had a lot of young people. But that's why the Bears were the Bears, because the Cubs were the Cubs. Cubs were the Cubs, and the Bears go, yeah, we're not Cubs, we're Bears. <laughs> Years later, Charles Comiskey had brought the Sioux City Cornhuskers to St. Paul, and they'd become the St. Paul Saints, and then he brought the St. Paul Saints to Chicago, and he couldn't call them the St. Paul Saints, and he didn't want to call them the Chicago Saints, because everybody knew them, because they played against them as the St. Paul Saints, and he found out, wait a minute, nobody's using white stockings. And that's an already known brand. In, in Chicago. Everybody knows about the White Stockings, but nobody's using the name. Okay, we're the Chicago White Stockings now. Which eventually got shortened to the White Sox. So technically, White Stockings did lead the White Sox, but not those White Stockings, okay? <laughs> it's a little thing. Anyway, that same year, because this is about Billy Sunday, because that's where this started. Same year, Billy Sunday accepted Christ after hearing a gospel message at the Pacific Garden Mission, it's a homeless shelter in the South Loop. Yeah, when it, Billy Sunday? Yeah, you got to become a Christian. Sunday became the most influential evangelistic leader in the 20th century. This guy changed everything about how you did evangelism. That's where we'll pick it up next week. So, how would you summarize what we've just talked about? Briefly, anything. I know, it's a gazillion piece... Every week there's a lot of pieces of information. I know. I'm not expecting everybody to remember everything. What kind of flow do you see? Any commonalities with any of the stuff we've just talked about? I think people are still just trying to figure things out. As they're figuring things out, it's kind of uh, um, actually just you know, focusing on how you know what it leads to them. And just kind of I think that is a wonderful synopsis. A wonderful synopsis. You say, people going, I think we're doing stuff wrong. You know why? Because people were doing stuff wrong. So, like, how do we figure this out? How do we do this right? I know how we do it right. And just stomping on everything because this is what it felt like to me. This is what it made sense to me. This, I don't like hell, so I'm going to figure out why hell doesn't exist. You know, I don't like the way, I don't like the way Africa's doing Africa, so I'm going to go and I'm going to fix Africa. And by the way, I'm going to make a lot of money off of it. It's like, how many different ways do we justify things? I'm going to take a stand for Christianity. It'll be a great battle. Should there have been a great battle in cartoon? No, a great battle. I'm the Mahdi. How many different people are going, I want to co-opt God for my stuff. Do we 
ever do that today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you have the wisdom to teach us truth. You have the compassion not to treat us like puppets, but you have the paternal love to demand that we actually try to live out wisdom and actually try to live out what we were sculpted to do and to be. I pray, Lord, help us, each of us, on a daily basis, to genuinely seek your face, to genuinely open up your word, and to try to gauge what your will is, not just what we would like your will to be. We pray, Lord, help us to glorify you, not just in what we do, but why we do it, the basis for it. Give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.